The apartment may suit your convenience, but I doubt whether it'll fit your convictions. It's the royal suite. Royal suite? Oh, just a minute. Comrades, I warn you. If it gets out of Moscow that we stay in the royal suite, we'll get into terrible trouble. We just tell him he had to do it on account of the safe. That's a perfect excuse. There was no other safe big enough. That's right. That's right. That's right. That's right. <laughs> but of course, we could take out the pieces and distribute them in three or four boxes in the vault and take a small room. That's an idea, isn't it? Yes, that's an idea. But who said we have to have an idea? That's right. That's Welcome to season two of How Would Lubitsch Do It, a podcast in which we discuss the works of director Ernst Lubitsch, one film at a time. It's September 1920, and today I discuss Sumeru. Or do I? Come visit ErnstCast.com if you'd like show notes, resources as to where you might find the films we'll be discussing, or just to say hi. Greetings, listeners of this podcast. Let's talk about the premise of this podcast, that being the series, How Would Lubitsch Do It? The most common descriptor of the show, given to me by others, is some form of staunchly completionist. And yeah, I mean, I'm here doing a damn Sumeroon episode. You got me dead to right. This show is by design imbued with the implication that every single one of these films, no matter how minor, is worth discussing. It's an ideal that I prize. I wouldn't do this whole series if I didn't. And I try to hold to it as much as possible. But like most ideals, it has practical limitations. Like Sumeru. I could recite some facts, right? That this was released in September of the year 1920. That this is Ernst Lubitsch's final on-screen role of note. Give or take a, a trailer here or there for Chop Around the Corner. That it's based off an old Max Reinhardt pantomime. Those are indeed all things I have read in books. I had things to say about Carmen. I sure had things to say about the eyes of the mummy. And somehow, I'm going to have things to say about the flame, despite the fact that it's mostly lost. But I've got to be honest. Beyond relaying things that I've read in books, like Scott Eyman's great biography, you know, Sabina Hackey and William Paul and Kristen Thompson's wonderful work, I truly have nothing to say about Sumerun. It's not good. It's not particularly interesting. If it were overtly incompetent, that'd be something. If it were notably bad, but represented anything resembling a new development in Lubitsch's trajectory as an artist, that would also be something. But it is none of those things. It's worse. It's mediocre. To one degree or another, these early seasons are swimming upstream of the currents of sensible topicality in podcasting. But today, those currents have bested me. And I'm, as a result, taking leave of my self-imposed duty to turn over every single last stone in Lubitsch's career. So, like any good garden-variety podcast host, I've asked the audience for some help, and I've collected some questions from you, our listeners. Yes, it's a listener mailbag episode. So, here we go. Now, I have curated these questions. Uh, if yours doesn't show up, it's because I had no good answer. And I have decided to deliver them all anonymously because a few of these are kind of combined from multiple questions I was given that were similar and that sort of thing. So here we go. Question number one. How do you approach studying films? Do you take handwritten or digital notes as you watch? What do you focus on? How do you organize or format them? This is a, you know, this is an interesting one because my own system for organizing my notes is unconscionably messy. I have a nearly 101 page, I think, long Google document full of digital clippings from 
the books I've been reading for the show. Uh, some episodes have only a couple of little notes, you know, for films like Romeo and Juliet in the Snow. There's like a paragraph on that anywhere. But other episodes like my, you know, the, our history of cinematography episode, I'll maybe have 10 pages of notes where I've just screenshotted pages from the, you know, the ebooks I've been reading and then highlighting the relevant sections or just transcribing, taking bullet points. But that's how I organize the actual notes. How I actually approach the study is I first try and get people who are more qualified than me to recommend me things. You know, I'll ask various guests to go, okay, so we're a month out from the episode. What would you recommend I read? I try and do my due diligence to read books that I, you know, I personally think based on my own expertise would, you know, lend me some background. I'm not very rigorous or organized with how I read these things. I'm jumping back and forth between three or four books usually and most times taking clippings as I go. I can't store that many things in my head at once. I can't store a whole season's worth. So I try to go episode by episode and go, what's the three pages of stuff I absolutely need to have off book for this episode? And so through that kind of messy process of just trying to read as many long form books as I can, trying to unearth academic works, especially that I might not have known. Um, it's great to have access to a lot of academics who have written a lot of this stuff on this podcast, because so much of this stuff is out of print, by the way. I mean, you can just email someone and go, hey, your book is out of print or it's only available on eBay for $300. Can I have a copy? And a lot of academics will be very generous and point you in the direction of where you can access a copy of their work because you know, their interest is in spreading knowledge usually, which is great. I wish my system were better. I have over the years tried to move over to, you know, quote unquote, better systems than just 100 page long Google document. But to be honest, I find that the way my brain works, ease of access trumps rigorous structure in my own personal note taking. And that's, you know, I don't publish my notes because they're unreadable to anyone but me. I also want to address the question of subject. What subjects must I know to do a podcast like this? Because unlike film formally, where, you know, we could do an episode on a specific subject that usually either Will or I were very well versed in ahead of time. This show, I am tremendously unqualified in. I'm not a historian. So trying to spread out my knowledge among a few things has been an interesting challenge to the show where, you know, just knowing Lubitsch's life is not enough. I have to know season one and two, a lot about early 20th century German history and the Berlin film scene, the Weimar Republic's culture. Uh, in upcoming seasons, I'm reading books on Hollywood history, on the economics of the place, along with critical and academic readings of the films themselves. So trying to get as much of a grasp as I need on the films, Lubitsch's life, the context of the time, all that to kind of create a well-rounded pool of knowledge where I can avoid at least embarrassing myself. And the next question is an interesting one. Are there any lessons modern filmmakers should take from the silent era of film? I can largely group the lessons I wish people would take into two categories, aesthetic and historiographical. I'll start with the second one because it might be less obviously apparent. Learning about how we approach our history from both an artistic and a moral standpoint, I think, is a fraught thing. Part of what I've been personally trying to avoid with this podcast is whenever we touch upon some inequity from 100 years ago, to not just declare moral superiority over the thing and simultaneously not to minimize historical wrongs. I've heard my fair share of both. There's the old canard of those were just the times, the, the way they did it at the time. And then there's the other canard of spending a whole podcast episode with the seeming goal of just going, hey, look at me. I am in this time I am superior to people at that time because of X, Y, and Z. There's a hubris in that that I find just completely antithetical to meaningful study of old culture, old art that I try to avoid. If there's a major kind of ethical lesson from this show, I hope it's that it's possible to meet art that has been created in a substantially different moral and ethical context from 
the one we're used to, how to actually grapple with it, and all those complexities. The second is just aesthetic. There are so many aesthetic paths that one can take. That's why I find myself so taken with films like The Wildcat and The Doll or Napoleon, to name a totally arbitrary non-Lubitsch film, where the techniques that define those movies did not enter into the canon of accepted techniques that dominate in Hollywood. There's this kind of idling state attitude that a lot of cinephiles even take, where there's this idea of the singularity, this endpoint, and the endpoint just happens to be whatever the dominant aesthetic is now, that every single work leading up to that point represents a step towards that. And that's not the case. The aesthetics that dominate didn't become that way because they were artistically superior necessarily. We didn't stop using many of the techniques that defined a lot of the silent era masterpieces in particular because they were worse or because they became obsolete. No, it's because of historical happenstance, economic conditions, trends, the list goes on, but it was never inevitable. And so silent film represents a real drove of wonderful techniques, many of which I think are underexplored, and I wish filmmakers would explore them. Now, I could say the same thing about, like, for example, digital cameras. I think that they opened up a whole new set of techniques that were not available to anyone up to this point that are also underexplored. And it's not that I'm pro-silent film. I am pro-underexplored techniques that we should explore more. This next question is a lengthy one. One thing that you and your guests have remarked on in the show are the occasional leaps and bounds that Lubitsch seems to make in those early films, perhaps most significantly with a film like The Oyster Princess. But you've similarly noted many gaps in knowledge as a result of numerous lost Lubitsch films, gaps that might otherwise help us understand more clearly the arc of his development. Have you come across any useful scholarship that has tried to reckon with some of these gaps? So this is a fascinating one. And the answer for most of the Berlin films is that mostly I haven't. And this does get at some of the limitations of this podcast, um, it being kind of the survey course of podcasts about Lubitsch. I have found an almost complete dearth of English language, at least, writing on his lost Berlin films. I would not be surprised if there is at least some German language scholarship on this that, unfortunately, I am not privy to. Maybe when I remake this podcast in 20 years, when I've uh, learned fluent German, maybe I can do an episode on the lost films. Um, the Two major lost films of the American period are of interest, though, I think. One is Kiss Me Again, which was made between Forbidden Paradise and Lady Windermere's Fan. I've, I've already recorded Lady Windermere's Fan episode, and we, we, we bring it up. But that was a film we made with Clara Bow, and it got fantastic notices, and has been entirely lost to history, which is a real shame. And then you have the film The Patriot. Again, I'm going to have to punt this because we're recording a whole episode about that film. But based on the trailer and what I have heard about the one reel that exists of the film, at least the one reel I know someone who has it, there is a lot of camera movement in it, and it also represents a return to the epics that Lubitsch was making at this time. Uh, it is his only serious historical epic of his American era, you know, with apparently lots of extras, big sweeping shots. Um, apparently some shots made it into Joseph von Sternberg's The Scarlet Empress. But that does actually, you know, throughout the season, we're saying, oh, he kind of abandoned the historical epic form. Well, not entirely. You know, that's just one example of the way that the narratives that shape how we tell the stories of artists' careers can be hugely changed by historical happenstance. Next question. Book recommendations, history of cinema, or even books to help non-film scholars learn more of the technical side of filmmaking. I come from a cinematography background, of course, and so these books definitely lean on the visual side of things. A few I want to highlight that I've been reading recently or using as a reference for this show. I do want to mention my two favorite cinematography books, technique of cinematography books ever, and those are The Five Seas of Cinematography by Joseph V. Maskelly and Painting with Light by John Alton. They are both mid-century primers on cinematography technique from explicitly an industry cinematographer's point of view. They mix 
theory of things like composition, of lighting. John Alton's book has a fantastic chapter on the theory of lighting with breakdowns of what at the time were just the standard, basically, here's how you do it, folks. But now, you know, 60, 50 years hence, both those books have great historical value as a snapshot in time of how movies were made at a certain point in time, which is, you know, the mid-century in Hollywood. So those are fantastic, both from a standpoint of, okay, here are some of the basic fundamental principles of theory that are kind of perennial. And here's how two industry people from the mid-century thought of it and the context in which all that occurred. I also want to recommend Patrick Keating's two major works on cinematography, one on lighting, one on camera movement. You can find information about those on our resources page. I also want to recommend a book called Color Mania that was recommended to me recently, and I just found it incredible. You can find it on filmcolors.org. It's a history of the material aspect of color photography. It's, it's a fantastic primer on the science and the artistic implications of color in film stocks. Um, aside from that, I'm always updating the resources page on earnscast.com with books that I think are of particular relevance to this show. I've recently added work by folks like Kristen Thompson and Pierre Labuza, so that's probably enough for anyone at this point, hopefully. If you could go back and restart the podcast from scratch, what would you change? What is the hardest part of running the show? <laughs> if my honest answer is the editing. That's why I brought on a couple of very talented editors this season to help me along with that. So the editing has thankfully gotten easier. But you know, my more interesting answer probably is that every time I release an episode, people have a habit of sending me new information, which is amazing that people listen to it and go, hey, Devin, here's something of interest. It's incredible. And I've learned so much. But at the same time, I'm like, oh. Sometimes I wish I had this information before I recorded. Um, so in a funny way, the very thing that makes this show so rewarding for me personally, which is the learning experience, is the most frustrating thing. I, I, I kind of go, OK, I wish this could be the first draft and then I could spend another year of my life doing the final product. But unfortunately, our time here is finite. So I got the one shot. The last question I got, I got from actually two people, but I, I'm going to choose this wording because I think it's the most honestly brutal. Is this show a money pit? You know. The question of monetizing a podcast is, is an interesting one to me because we tried to do it with film formally. And it actually, as far as those things go, considering the size of the podcast, it wasn't bad. We did a Patreon and everything. But what I personally found is that as soon as there is a financial aspect to the podcast, you, you start to have to think of it differently, right? Your, your decision-making process changes. You not only have to go, okay, what's the most interesting possible thing for me as a human? No, it's the classic blunder of anyone looking to monetize their hobby. It's no longer about, okay, what's the most interesting? What's the way that this can entertain me the most? It's how can I make this worth the time? right? I work as a colorist. I am saying yes or no to gigs based on is the money worth my time? And so with this podcast, I made a decision early on to barring some wild success where this thing, you know, dwarfs all my other life's achievements, which, you know, you know, no river short enough can't have a bend, but I, I doubt it. I will not make any moves or attempts to monetize this podcast either through advertisements or Patreon. Now, again, this is not a promise, but a description of my intent when going into it. The show was born out of a bit of artistic frustration, one might say. Like any working artist, you go through periods where, you know, you work on a few projects in a row that are strictly to keep the lights on, to pay rent, and you start to go, well, I'm just a hired gun now. Am I actually doing what I want with my time? And I just went, okay, I want to put something out into the world that is interesting to me and that is good and has value. And moreover, is not something anyone else is likely to put out. If I can pay tribute to one of my favorite artists while doing that, great. And I thought the best way to do that would be to totally divorce it from any questions of income, right? The bargain of that is I say yes to a couple more color gigs, teaching gigs that I wouldn't have otherwise maybe said yes to. My monetization of the show is me just being a bit more mercenary with my other work occasionally. So 
yes, this show is a money pit. But to me, part of what makes it interesting is that I'm making all these decisions. Again, I'm doing a Darren Simaroon episode. I'm starting with two seasons of some of the most obscure films I think probably ever to be podcasted. And I don't know if I would have made those decisions if not for that first guiding impulse, which is, okay, I'm not going to try and optimize this for audience. I'm not going to try and optimize this for financial reasons. I'm going to optimize this for my own entertainment and what I personally think is the most interesting self-expression to put out into the world. And if that means creating some weird esoteric episodes in the middle of the most fraught season, fraught in the sense of the movies being of the most, in my opinion, least questionable value sometimes, so be it. That's great. It's, you know, it's my podcast and everyone else has to deal with it. And I like it that way. So yeah, those are the questions. Thanks for sending those in. I want to end on a couple of pieces of news because I figure if you've made it this far in this episode, you're probably in the top 10, 20 percentile of people who are into the show. So that's great. This is for you. I want to say that first, we have some fun news. I finally caved and decided to start a small for the time being Discord for this podcast. And basically, it's an excuse to have a glorified group chat where we can all just talk about film form, film history, and anything that interests us. And just a way to talk with people with shared interests that isn't Twitter. If you want to join us there, there's an invite link in the show notes, both on ErnstCast.com and on the podcatcher show notes. So you can click on that and join us on Discord. We're starting slowly. And this is my soft announcement of it. I don't want to flood it with people yet. But if you're listening now, you are statistically in the middle of all the Venn diagram circles that would maybe make this Discord interesting to you. So give it a shot if you want a place to talk with us. Second, the last half of the season approaches. We are at the midpoint of the season. We have five episodes left. We have Anna Boleyn, our mystery episode that is progressively becoming less of a mystery because I keep talking about it. The Wildcat, Loves of the Pharaoh, and The Flame. And after that, we take six weeks. I am hugely looking forward to the second half of the season. We have a few episodes in a row that I think are among the best I've ever recorded. I'm so happy with them. I'm incredibly excited to share them. I cannot wait to explore the rest of Ernst Lubitsch's Berlin era with all you folks. So with that, I say see you later. And thank you for joining us for our first and maybe only Q&A episode. Next week, Paul Cuff joins us to discuss Anna Bullen. Head over to www.ernstcast.com for links to the various public domain films we'll be discussing this season and other resources such as show notes. How Would Lubitsch Do It is a production of Moving Image Agency. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate and review us on whatever podcast service you happen to use. We'd like to acknowledge that this podcast was produced on the unceded territory of the Musqueam, Squamish, and tsleil peoples. 